would help be a, a witness to Jesus' resurrection. Someone else who would, help, who would be able to speak about Jesus' resurrection to others. Now as we venture into chapter 2 of Acts, we're going to find that the waiting is now going to come to an end. So this is the part in Acts where the Holy Spirit comes to Jesus' church. So let me read these verses for us. Acts chapter 2, you can follow along on the screen behind me, or if you've got a device or Bible, feel free to follow along in there. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others said, they, or, but others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this passage. I pray that it would speak to us in a profound way, that we would understand who you are in new ways, but even more than that, that our faith in Jesus would be built. So with a long list of of people and ethnicities that we read through, and it's easy for us to get lost in those things, would you help us to hear the good news of Jesus as we work through this passage? And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Okay, so let's Let's get into this, but first I just want to provide a really brief summary of what is going on here in these verses. So this begins with a mention of the day of Pentecost, which we're going to unpack its significance in just a moment. But on this day, there's a supernatural experience that happens in this place, in this house where Jesus' followers are gathered. And this supernatural experience is the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus had made, the Holy Spirit came to these individuals, rested upon them, indwelt in them. And in this moment, they began to speak in a variety of language. And this blew the minds of the people who had gathered around this place to the point where some even suggested that they began drinking too early on that day. Right. Okay, so Christianity is many things. But once you get into the Bible and you actually read stories about what Christianity is and is not, people should never be able to say that it's boring, right? Though that is a reputation that Christianity has. 
But when we read passages like this, we should be able to conclude this is not boring. Like this is some whacked out stuff, right? Like this is crazy stuff that is going on. Okay, so let's find some good news in these verses. So first I just want to state the obvious here about good news. And that is that God kept his promise. If you would read through the Bible, you would find that the Bible is filled with many promises. And not one of them has been broken by God. He has fulfilled every single promise. This story should remind us again of God's faithfulness, of his trustworthiness. Why we should put faith and trust in Jesus. And this should incite rest and peace in our hearts as well. Because there's this reality that Jesus is sturdy. There are many things that we look at in our world that want to promise things to us, but continually, eventually let us down. But Jesus is not that way. Ever. He is sturdy. He is where we should put our hope and our trust. Okay, I mentioned this last week, but I want to highlight this briefly. They are all together in one place. Okay, so the early church, this is implying unity. And this idea that unity is essential for Jesus' church. If we are not united as a church... And I'm not talking just on the surface level, but if we're not united, many of the things that we say, that we preach, that we talk about, will will prove them to be a sham. Really, we need to be able to graciously talk about hard things with one another. That is what it means to be a church, that we work hard at being unified together, knowing one another, knowing our weaknesses, knowing our struggles, and caring for one another in these ways. Okay, next I want to talk about Pentecost. So it says in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Okay, so this is inferring that Pentecost is a set day, something that comes around every so often. So I want to give a little bit of background about this day because I think it will help us understand what is happening here uh, at, at the day of Pentecost. So I want to head to the Old Testament. I'm not going to read this. Um, but the things I'm referencing are coming from Leviticus 23. Leviticus, if you, if you don't know anything about Leviticus, it's like everybody's favorite book in the Old Testament. Actually, it's not at all, okay? But uh, Leviticus 23, in it, it, what it does is it talks about a number of different feasts that occurred throughout the year in the nation of Israel, okay? So feasts were really important for the nation of Israel to remember things, to celebrate things that had happened in their history. And one of the feasts that's talked about is the Feast of Weeks. So this is talked about in um, Leviticus 23. So this feast specifically was a harvest festival, Okay, so what they are doing when this feast comes around is they are celebrating God's provision for them, specifically pertaining to crops, right? So this is very much an agricultural culture, right? So God has provided for us through food, and so they are celebrating this together. And this occurred seven weeks or 50 days after Passover, And this feast also included the sacrifice of seven perfect lambs in it. So the Feast of Weeks was instituted as this annual feast 
where the nation of Israel would come together and they would remind one another of God's care for them historically. Okay, And then, out of that, how they then were called to be generous to other people as well. So God's been generous to us. We then are called to be generous to other people as well. And so, to be clear, this was a time of great celebration for Israelites. So they're reminding themselves, remembering, God has provided for the needs of his people. God has provided for us. So now, in the book of Acts... As we get to Pentecost, this is the Greek name given for Feast of Weeks. And this is also occurring 50 days after Passover. So 50 days after Jesus, the sinless, perfect lamb was sacrificed, okay? So remember I just mentioned that there was seven perfect lambs that were sacrificed during this feast. And now we've got Jesus Also, 50 days after that occurring, and this is happening in this house. So these Jewish people are gathered to celebrate God's historical provision. But now, on this day, God comes and he is demonstrating a greater provision than what has occurred historically. So he is providing for the spiritual needs of his people. He is providing himself in the form of the Holy Spirit. And so this celebration of God's harvest is going to move from a physical harvest, one that met the needs of somebody's stomach, to a spiritual harvest. So the provision of the Holy Spirit is going to lead in coming chapters in Acts to many people trusting in Jesus. And this is going to cause many people to celebrate God's spiritual harvest that he is bringing about. And so then what's happening in this scenario here is something that's common within the whole of the Bible. An old thing, and here it's a festival, but an old thing is being reimagined. It's becoming something new. And the new thing is then understood through Jesus. Jesus is providing the Holy Spirit. Jesus brings about a greater harvest through spiritual renewal, through the salvation that he provides. And we also see this old and new paradigm in a couple of examples in this Pentecost event that we're reading about in Acts 2. So I want to talk about these two examples. The first is seen in the location. So in verse 2, we read of this group of people that they're gathered in a house, okay? So when we're reading this, we might just like quickly read over and not even think that this is a detail that means anything whatsoever. But it is significant. And here's why. Because historically, following the exodus out of Egypt, when God came to his people, they were slaves in Egypt, they called out to God for help, God comes to them, rescues them, and leads them out of Egypt. After that time, many of the examples where God's presence is experienced in Israel, it occurs in the temple, in the temple proper, okay, or in the tabernacle. This is the place that God would come and he would meet with his people, in the temple. Now, as we find ourselves here in the New Testament, so much of Jewish life still revolves around the temple. And so the sensible place for God to come and meet with his people is in the temple, 
right? So it's striking then that we find God coming to his people not in the temple. But what we know from the New Testament is God is not constructing a building. That's not what he is about. He is building a people. He's building a church. And we read about this in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, So then you are members of the household of God, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So God is building a people. And he'll talk about it in structural terms, like a household. Okay, so God is building a people together and Jesus is the foundation. He is the cornerstone of that people. So Jesus' church then is a living, breathing people, not a decaying building, okay? Jesus' glory is found and seen through saved sinners, not through an immaculate building, but through saved sinners, through lives. And this whole paradigm then also illustrates the pursuing nature of God, okay? He's coming to people. That's what we're reading in Acts 2. God's coming to people. He's not saying, find me. Jesus finds them. The Holy Spirit's coming to them. Okay, so location is one of these instances where we're seeing the the movement from old to new. Secondly, we see the old and new demonstrated in some of the details surrounding the coming of the Holy Spirit. So what we read in Acts is the coming of the Holy Spirit is experienced with the sound of wind, with the sight of fire, and the speaking of words. Okay, so what's, what we're reading about here in Acts 2 is, is actually a really significant event in the course of the whole Bible, Okay. So when we're reading about really significant events, it's good for us to think about where else have we seen something similar in the Bible. And that then can help us understand how to understand this, how to interpret this, okay? So a similar event, or at least some details that have some similarity. I was struck by the similarity this event has to God coming to Israel as he gave them the Ten Commandments, in the Old Testament, okay? In that event, in, in the book of Exodus, this is what we read. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, okay? So we've got the similarity of fire that we can identify. Also, at Mount Sinai, there was speaking, but the speaking there was marked by God's voice thundering in front of Israel, There was also at Mount Sinai thunder and lightning that created this sense of a storm, similar to the wind in the Pentecost account. Now at Mount Sinai, it says, the people trembled, okay? They were scared. And this illustrates a distinction, a difference that displays the the movement from old to new, what Jesus is bringing about here. Okay, so at Mount Sinai, God's people were told, don't go near the mountain, right? Don't touch the mountain. But here at Pentecost, what we're reading, what we're finding is God comes near. 
So near that he's resting upon, he's touching his people. This is how near he's drawing to his people. So massive difference that we see here in the progression of the story in the Bible. There's this movement away from fear, away from law, and towards grace. Okay, so the image of fire that terrified people now comes to rest upon people as a gift. The voice that thundered, that scared people at Mount Sinai now enables us, comes into us so that we might speak good news. Not news of fear, but good news to other people. Now all of this isn't to say that God isn't still holy, that God doesn't hate sin. God still hates sin. We just see his hatred of sin is so deep that he's willing to send his son and take the punishment of sin upon himself, to deal with it himself. Not just to strike fear in our hearts and say, don't sin, but he sends his son to take his wrath upon himself. His love is so vast that he was willing to take upon himself God's wrath and punishment for us. And this then is the beauty of the movement from old to new. We do not need to be scared to draw near to God. We can and should be elated that he draws near to us. As people used to sacrifice seven perfect lambs during the Feast of Weeks as an offering to God, now God has made a way for sinners to approach himself with boldness through Jesus, through Jesus' sacrifice, through him being that perfect lamb that is sacrificed for our sins. And so in Jesus, the old has passed. The law is no more. He has fulfilled all. All of it. And Jesus makes a new way, and this new way is marked by grace. Undeserved favor, okay? That's how we come to God. Not through all of our spiritual rigor and discipline, not by all of our good acts do we approach God. First, He approaches us in the midst of our sin, and then He welcomes us by grace to draw near to Him. This is great news. Okay, so, so all of this is to say what we may read on the surface here in Acts 2 as maybe some weird details in an odd event actually has deep meaning transpiring in this sequence connected to the history of Israel. Okay, so that, that's Pentecost. Now I want to touch on verse 4 just briefly here because of controversy around this verse. Maybe some of you grew up in uh, denominations or a church that really emphasized this verse. So this says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So some people or churches or denominations read this verse and have concluded that in order for someone to be a Christian, they must speak in tongues. They must speak in another language that's unrecognizable to other people, okay? So the thinking is, when someone believes in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into them, and then they're able to speak in tongues, all right? 
So that, that is a teaching, a pervasive teaching in some churches and denominations. So this brings us back to a conversation I introduced last week. And that's this idea of description versus prescription. Is what we're reading here describing something? Or is what we're reading here prescribing something? Is it saying this must be the way it is, or this is how things ought to be? Or is it just describing some events that were taking place? Okay, so a good way to handle something like this, whether it's here or somewhere else in the Bible, is to first note what is explicitly being said in this verse, okay? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So these individuals here, the Holy Spirit comes to them, and they all begin to speak in other tongues, okay? So in this, there's no explicit teaching here that someone must speak in tongues to be a Christian, okay? It's not saying that. It's just saying this is what occurred in this instance. So that should be helpful for us, okay? But furthermore, then we can also look at other parts of the Bible and see what they say to us in terms of these kinds of issues. So what's stated clearly in 1 Corinthians 12 as it speaks about the spiritual gift of tongues is that the sign of tongues is not given to all people who trust in Jesus, but to some, okay? So it says very clearly here, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge, okay? To another faith, to another gifts of healing, to another the working of miracles, and it goes on and on, and then it says to another various kinds of tongues, okay? So, when someone believes in Jesus, there's no guarantee that they will be able to speak in tongues, Okay, so, so this should be really helpful then in how we understand what's going on in Acts 2-4. It is describing what occurred on that day of Pentecost. It is not prescribing saying this is how it must be. And I know a lot of people have really dealt with a ton of fear with this because they grew up in these church contexts and then they, they didn't speak in tongues or they, they faked it, they were forced into it and they're like, what's wrong with me? Right? And, and so part of my intention in this is just to try and alleviate fear that maybe some of us have been dogged by in our own history with this because we've been taught in order to be a Christian, you have to speak in tongues. That is not what the Bible teaches. So we should read, be able to read this as description of an event that cur- occurred not prescribing how every Christian throughout history will act. Now, it is important for us to note what occurs when the Holy Spirit comes upon people, okay? What we do see is that they do start to talk. And so this is something we see consistently throughout the New Testament. There is a word-based verbal emphasis that occurs in the life of Christians. So the gospel, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it's news, okay? And news is intended to be shared. When we receive good news, we want to share it with other people. That's very normal and natural for us. And the gospel is the same way. When we receive the gospel, we will want to share good news, this good news, with others. Now, this is highlighted by the fact of God's Spirit coming and people 
immediately begin speaking intelligible words. But the question then is about what? What are the words that these people are talking about? And it says in verse 11, they are talking about the mighty works of God. Okay, so it's not just something random. Right? It's not just a bunch of words. It's words about God and his power seen in and through Jesus specifically. And the reality is there's no end to the extent of what can be said about God's mighty works. Even in our everyday lives here and now. In nature. There's tons of ways that we can see God's mighty works. So if you would go and stand on the edge of an ocean... And you would hear those waves thundering. That's an example of a way in which we can be struck by God's might. When we hear those waves thundering. Or if we would go and look at a glorious mountain range. right? To see those mountains, powerful, massive, is a reminder of God's mighty works. Or even if we get up early and we see a sunrise or a sunset in the evening, these are reminders of God's mighty works. Maybe silence, if we're out in nature and we hear nothing, even that can be a reminder to us of God's mighty works. Or smelling something really good can be a reminder of God's mighty works. Or maybe some of you are going to go home today and you're going to watch a football game. Right? And you may, maybe you'll see someone make a really athletic catch or do something really athletic. These also are examples of God's mighty works as well, that people can do these things. When people can do tons of flips, right? I can't do a flip. I can't do a cartwheel, right? But, but these are examples in which we can see reminders, hints, glimpses of God's mighty works or solving complex math problems or listening to music. Or a good rap song, right? And on and on. God created these people, these ideas. He's gifted people in various ways. But all of these physical examples are pointing to something even greater. And that is God's mighty work in spiritual realities. Specifically, Jesus' death on the cross. The fact that God offers forgiveness to us. We are rebels running away from Jesus, and he runs after us. He's not waiting for us to run towards him, and then he comes to us. He's not meeting us halfway. We are full-throated running away from God, and he is running after us, chasing us down, pursuing us in love to offer forgiveness, to save us from our sin and from ourselves. The fact that he offers us grace. The fact that he loves us when we don't care, when we don't know, are all examples of his mighty works, spiritually speaking. And then it says here in Acts 2 that the individuals hearing about God's mighty works were both amazed and perplexed. I think this is kind of a constant thing. Whether, whether someone is a Christian or a non-Christian, we can feel this, both amazement and perplexion, as we think about God and his work. 
So wherever we're at today, we probably feel a mix of this. Simultaneously amazed and perplexed. Because we might look at the world and be like, how is God at work in the mess that is this world? Like, where is he? And we might be perplexed in certain ways. We might wonder, who is God? Where is God? But maybe also we've walked out in the last couple weeks and we've seen the beautiful colors of the leaves and they've stunned us and it's reminded us of God's amazing work. In our day and age, a consideration of God's works is oftentimes glossed over because of the insta-culture that we live in, right? We're going from one thing to the next and it's hard for us to stop and to really consider. And we think people are great and people are doing great things and we forget the fact of what lies behind all of us that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from God himself. Okay, a few words on the people hearing about these mighty works. So there's a bunch of Jewish people that have gathered in the city of Jerusalem, whether visitors or residents, to, uh, to celebrate this national festival of Pentecost. But this house where Jesus' followers are gathered begins to swell with the noise and commotion of God's Spirit coming upon these people. And then bunches of people outside the house begin to hear and gather around the house. And and these are Jewish people that are gathering around the house, but they represent a wide swath of geographical locations. So I'm going to throw this map up here, okay? And this is just trying to highlight, so, so I was reading all these different places and people and nations and so forth, right? And most of us probably just started tuning out because we don't know where any of these places are and those, those locations don't really mean anything to us, right? But this helps to give us a sense down, down in uh, kind of the northern part of Africa and into the Middle East, and then this is moving off into Asia then as well, uh, looking up and what is to... Uh, what's modern day Europe as well, right? And, and so this is a massive amount of land and location. And, and what happened at one point in history is many of the Jewish people were dispersed in many different ways and places because of persecution, right? And so they ended up in these different nations. But at times when these national feasts are thrown, they will come back to Jerusalem to celebrate, Right? and to be with their people, to remember who God is and what he's done. So what's going on here with all these people coming back? This is comprising an international presence of Jewish people. And they are all amazed that they are hearing of God's works in their own language, where they maybe currently live. And this really speaks to the international multicultural reality of Christianity. Christianity is not for one ethnicity. It's intended to look very differently, to be a beautiful mix. And so it's not for one people group, one ethnicity. It's for all people, and we all need the good news of Jesus. Now, in the midst of this, some of the hearers mock the speakers and say, though it's early in the morning, they've simply had too much wine to drink. So they're talking about 
wine and, and new wine here. But, but there's actually some irony in this statement. Because Jesus himself speaks of being new wine as well. And not only that, so when he's talking about that, he's speaking metaphorically, right? Okay, but he also encourages his followers to drink wine as a way to remember how his death on the cross is a new and better way. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper here, right, like we make wine available. And when we drink that wine, it's a reminder of how Jesus shed his blood for us. And in that, how he offers forgiveness to us. And so the new wine Jesus offers is intended to be consumed liberally, okay? Jesus wants us to consume him by belief, believing in him, saying he is everything, and making him everything in our lives, okay? To consume him by faith in a liberal way. And this will cause us to look a little goofy to the world around us. Goofy in the sense that we love people who aren't normally loved or who are maybe unlovable at times. It will call us to sacrifice our lives in ways that doesn't make sense in a self-interested, consumeristic culture, right? The, the culture is not going to tell us to sacrifice. It's going to tell us to consume, right? But Jesus is going to call us to sacrifice our preferences, our desires for the good of others. Jesus is going to call us to forgive people when they sin against us. And we'll probably be chuckled at for looking soft or getting run over or investing in things that seem to have little to no benefit today. Because our eyes are fixed on something more future-oriented. Instead of, not solely, here and now, though we care about the here and now as well. But the reality is Joseph, Jesus knows a bit about being mocked, right? And when he was mocked, he didn't stop, right? And so the call for us too, when we are mocked, and we will be, if we're Christians and we're believing in Jesus, we will at times be mocked, but the call for us is to not stop, right? To be okay, to know Jesus promised this, and to move forward in faith. Not feeling like we have to fight a culture war. We don't need to defend Jesus per se, right? He, he can defend himself, but we can stand firm in what he's called us to. Okay, we, we end our sermons here at Center Church with what we call gospel application, okay? When you leave here, the point is not for you to have three things to do to make yourself a good Christian, okay? The gospel is good news. And if we're telling you three things to do every single week, that is 156 things at the end of the year that you need to be doing, okay? We want to send you out with good news. And good news is this is what Jesus has done for you. You don't need to do this. Just believe in him, okay? So first of all, Jesus comes to us, and he rests on us, and he invites us to rest in him then. So when God's Spirit comes upon these people in Acts 2, notice there isn't a list of to-dos, right? Even when they, in the action that they participate in, which is speaking, okay, it says that the Holy Spirit gave 
them utterance. Okay, so that ability, their words were gifted to them. So hear this, the people weren't coerced, right? They weren't shamed, they weren't forced into speaking about Jesus. They encountered goodness and they wanted to speak of God's mighty works. This is the Christian life, right here. An emphasis on Jesus' mighty works, not ours. He comes to us, he saves us, he rests upon us, he invites us to rest in him. All of it undeserved. And then, if we actually encounter this in a profound way, we, if we truly know what Jesus is doing in us and for us on the cross, we will want to tell other people about this. So Jesus comes to us. He gives grace. He rests on us to comfort us, to guide us, to show us our sin, what's harmful to us, to forgive us. Okay, so Jesus comes to us and rests on us. Also, Jesus comes in power. I think the power of Jesus is understated in our American context. We are so caught up in being powerful ourselves and looking impressive and getting a social media following in, in whatever, in advancing in our job, right, being really good athletically, being impressive in the eyes of others. We want to be part of a group or an organization that maybe has cultural sway, but, but that's not the way of Jesus. Romans 1.16 says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Where is power found? In and through believing the gospel. That's where power is found. So let us be a people who believe in Jesus, the only person where power is found. Let's walk throughout our days in the power of Jesus' name because every other perceived power in our world is a facade. It's going to crumble. It's going to disappoint. Jesus is the source of all power. He possesses what we are looking for, what we are longing for. And so let's believe in him. And so this is an invitation for us to believe, whether it's for the first time to believe in Jesus or for the thousandth time to believe in Jesus.